This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, concerns that Australia's seasonal labour program might be expanding too fast and leaving the welfare of workers behind. Are we sort of, you know, going forward uh, one step and, and three back? Mm. Or are we, you know, um, going ahead and, and not having having the costs uh, getting to the point where you, you have government saying, no, you know, I'm going to hold off. And Fijians mourn the death of a revered social commentator and philanthropist, Alan Lockington. We hear about the legacy he leaves behind. And today is Australia Day. But some say celebrations ignore First Nations' traumatic experience of coloni- colonisation. We hear how the country's South Sea Islander and Pacific communities are choosing to mark the day. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. But first, a simulated war game by a Washington think tank that puts Guam in the center of a proposed conflict between China and the U.S. has prompted fears that the people of Guam aren't fully aware of the risks facing the territory. Ken Cooper is the co-founder of the Pacific Center for Island Security, a research institute based in Guam that tracks geopolitical maneuvering from an islander perspective. He joins us today to discuss the project. Good morning to you, Ken. Good morning. Um, now, this this war game, uh, which is posted on uh, the the website of the Washington Think Tank, the Center for for Strategic and International um, uh, Policy, I believe, uh, it starts with this question: What will happen if China invades Taiwan? They then simulate various outcomes, many that put Guam in the center of the warfare. How do you and the people of Guam? feel not only about the prospect of war, but also about being used in this way in this war game? It's a very complicated story. Um, yes, yeah, so the CSIS report was 24, uh, more than 20 different um, war games. But, you know, in general, you know, in Guam, like my grandmother's generation was the one that directly experienced World War II. You know, the Japanese took Guam, um, invaded Guam, and the Americans returned uh, and reoccupied the island um, like two and a half years later. And so, you know, even even today, they don't talk about the horrors of war that much. Um, and during the Cold War, we live with the notion that, you know, we would be a first as well. And so now we have the current framing for a regional conflict, which essentially makes us ex- expendable, um, where once... You know, the presence of the military here in Guam was a deterrent. Now it's pretty clear that the, this presence is associated with targeting. Now, in regards to the community, um, you know, it's it's a very complicated story. Some people are desensitized to it in the fact that when 2017, when there was the fire and free rhetoric between Donald Trump um, and Kim Jong-un, mm. what we saw was that a lot of people said, oh, we're not that worried about it. And so I think when you're perpetually prepared for war, Guam is called the tip of the spear. There is an aspect in which you get desensitized to these threats, and I, but I feel that we need to be in the current geopolitical escalation. We can't adopt that attitude anymore. I think um, we need to really track these issues. Um, you know, our lives are here, um, our children are here, uh, our ancestors are here. So it's not, it's not enough to be desensitized and just say, oh. Um, there are only two solutions. Number one is either you're desensitized to it, or number two is you thank the U.S. military for protecting us. And I think there's a more complicated picture 
um, and analysis that needs to be done here mm. in Guam. I mean, what is that complicated picture? How does it look like? You mentioned that desensitization, a bit of complacency, but you can understand that considering the the years that Guam has, has as you said, been been thought of as quite expendable in just this military sense. Correct. You know, I think a lot of that complication actually does stem from World War II um, because there is this, you know, a lot of people in Guam um, really feel a sense of gratitude towards the U.S. military, you know, and rightfully so, um, and for liberating the island from the Japanese after World War II. And so, you know, it, it feels like there's this extraordinarily strong sense of gratitude, and one can even say debt, that makes it so that critiquing the U.S. military in a um, real fundamental way can be seen by some people in Guam as being uh, unappreciative. And so I think that's what complicates the picture. And then also the notion that, you know, um, if the military in Guam is pretty much everywhere, right? And so uh, one of our elders said, if the military is a 10-foot giant, no matter where it walks, right, it's bound to step on one of your children. And so it's tied up with the economy. It's the, You know, the military is tied up with society. Uh, many of our own um, family members are in the military. So it makes it so that the line between critiquing the military presence and what that does to Guam can be conflated as to being seen as anti-American, which to me is definitely not the case, right? Um, but it comes off that way to certain people. So it complicates it, right? Oh, we can't critique the U.S. military or their presence here in a substantial way, because then that means we're not grateful, or that means that you dislike your your cousin in the military, you're anti-American. And so I think we're reaching a time where we need to stop with, con we need to stop conflating those two things, because we have to wake up to the reality that our island is uh, the future of our island is at stake here. Mm. Uh, what What is the, I guess, meat of that um, criticism, Ken? Uh, you mentioned there that the military, um, I guess, outpost and the military use of, of Guam um, by the United States could not make the territory safer, but it could actually put a target on its back. Is that the case? Do you think U.S. involvement in Guam is, is actually bad for the people of Guam? So bad... Bad is is an interesting word to use. Um, you know, it's it's a very it's multi layered, right? Um, mm -hmm. One thing I like to say is that uh, military presence and uh, U.S. colonialism in Guam is is like a is like an onion. <laughs> There's so many layers you have to peel, right? And some of those layers are fine; others will make you cry. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> um, and so, I, I think essentially what happens is that you know, with, with the CSIS report, what's what's very clear is that Guam is critical to any Chinese amphibious invasion in Taiwan, right? Um, essentially, what's happening right now is the relocating uh, a significant amount of Marines from Okinawa to Guam, uh, because the Marines have opened up a new base here named Camp Laws. And at the same time as this is occurring, the Missile Defense Agency is scoping sites in Guam to develop a distributed and dispersed um, missile, what they call missile defense, we call it anti-missile systems architecture. Mm. And so here's the problem with that. The problem is that, you know, Guam is a U.S. territory, right? Um, it's strategically located in what they call the second island chain. So if there's any conflict in Asia, Guam will be the gas station, repair shop, command center. 
And it's clear that China knows this too, right? As we saw in the CSIS report, Guam is targeted in almost in every of these scenarios. Guam was even devastated in the scenario where first island chain countries like Japan didn't enter the conflict. Guam was devastated. But clearly, in each of these scenarios, we see that Guam has a role to play. And so if there is a regional conflict, Guam is obviously at greater risk than the larger United States, because the tenor of this competition between China and the United States has really felt that conflict is inevitable. And so, you know, the expectation is that Guam would be targeted. Um, and that's a very scary thing. And it's not, we're not ringing uh, warning bells prematurely. We're ringing them right on time. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, that the people of Guam seem to be a bit desensitized, a bit complacent about this prospect of war. How do you think they should react? How how should they be involved? Sure. So definitely not everyone. You know, I, um, there is a large, I think there is a significant portion of the community as well that truly understands the risk. So I'm not painting a blanket picture just to say that I do feel that there are uh, the, the significant, the other significant part of the population that is desensitized. Um, I think we need to wake up um, to the reality that we're facing in our future. You know, um, I think that we need to realize that, you know, Guam has often our role in sort of deterrence um, being used for United States deterrence in this region. But deterrence is such a unstable form of quote unquote peace that can break at any time. Right. And so um, as Guam all many geopolitical roads in this region called the Asia Pacific lead back to Guam. And that has a lot of ramifications for us in our future. When we think about, are we going to, are we going to wake up at any time and realize that all the moves that are being made now to sharpen Guam further into the tip of the spear will finally be called upon because as of right now, right? A lot of people believe that the U S military presence in Guam, the Marine expansion in Guam, all of that will be good money, right? There's the economic factor. But in addition to that, they believe that it will keep the island safe. And I think we need to really critique that perspective and complicate it a little bit. Um, does it keep the island safe or does it make the island a target? And I, I don't think that the making the island a target perspective is um, is saturated enough here. Mm. And it needs to be. If you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat here on your Thursday morning, we're speaking to Ken Cooper, the co-founder of the Pacific Center for Island Security. And we're talking about this uh, simulated war game by the CS. Or remind me of the, the acronym there, Ken. Is it CSIS? Oh, sure, CSIS. That's CSIS. right. Um, and it is, of course, a Washington think tank. And, and it's um, done this war game between, uh, you know, suggesting if, what happens if China invades Taiwan. And, and we see in a lot of scenarios that Guam is in the center of this war. Um, now, can I, I understand that your center, the Pacific Center for Island Security, was actually formed to provide an islander perspective on geopolitics, on these talks of, of militarization of the Pacific. Do you feel that that perspective, that islander perspective, can be lacking in some conversations about militarization? Um, mainly all of them. <laughs> um, you know, and the thing is, like, especially with a place like Guam, right? Let me just give you an example. Yeah. A lot of the talk right now is, um, you know, we need to make Guam a resilient place to fight from. But in doing that, we have to fight for Guam as well. That's sort of the, um, the, the topic of conversation. 
But in doing that, right, when they're proposing missile defense systems or anti-missile systems, you know, they will also say that there's no possibility or very low possibility of the zero leak system, meaning that there will be leakers and there will be missiles, right? So maybe one or two missiles that hit Guam, if the military preps for that, right, then they can still be resilient and work within Guam in that scenario. But one or two missiles to hit Guam for us, the people of Guam, would be extraordinarily destructive. And so I think the problem here is that island utility always trumps island concerns. Mm. And being the living embodiment of deterrence makes it so that the risks of miscalculation could be terminal for us. We, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like we're the chip that gets to be gambled with first. Guam is essentially the fail-safe. And that's our current reality. That's our... That's our existence in Guam. That's how the world knows us. I remember going to New Zealand one time, and um, the f only thing that this person knew about Guam, where I was from, was that we were that giant American military base. <laughs> and so when it's all you're known for internationally and in the world, when that card gets called, we may have to pay the price. <laughs> and so the Islander perspective has often been shut out of that in favor of island utility. And considering that, I mean, it's almost as we've been talking about this inevitability now that we're talking about military um, invasion. Um, the uh, that China is is will or the Guam will be used in in this potential conflict between China and and the United States. I mean, this war game made that clear. But do you think the U.S. is doing enough to de-escalate tensions in in your mind? China is also often framed as the aggressor. Is is war inevitable? I don't think war is inevitable. Um, I do not. I think that there are ways uh, guardrails need to be set up. Uh, more substantive communication lines need to be opened up. And um, I, I think there's this this sense right now, right, where there's just this, this deep mistrust between the two great powers. And this is where this is the 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 interesting part of it, right? Is like Guam looks at this event and is like, well, neither China nor the United States are, um, you know, necessarily the good guys in this scenario for us, right? Because, you know, there's that African proverb, when two elephants fight, it's the grass they get stomped on. We're the grass, right? And so I think that, um, and it's hard too, because we're a territory, right? So we have no, we're not in control of our foreign policy. No so voting for us rights. to get involved, correct, we, uh, we don't have any... Um, electors in the electoral college you know we uh we have only a non-voting representative in the lower chamber of the house of representatives in the u.s congress and so that that's another aspect of it right is we don't control our foreign policy so how can we effectively diplomatically engage to help provide a role in um, ameliorating escalation um and so i think that a lot of this is tied into our political status as well as a you know, non-sovereign uh, U.S. territory. Mm. And just finally, Ken, I wanted to ask, there's, this is all coming at a time where China isn't increasing its influence in the in the Pacific, and we're seeing some Pacific leaders push back from that. The new Fijian prime minister just recently told the Australian paper uh, here that he would overturn China's previous security um, agreements with his country, some of them around policing, he, he mentioned, and, and would take a tough stance in the face of China in preference for more traditional allies 
allies like Australia and, and the United States. Do you believe that more countries should take these firm sides in this potential conflict between Australia and China or US and China, sorry? Well, you know, um, I will say this, um, you know, the Pacific sovereign states need to do what is in the best national interest for the Pacific sovereign states and for the region. And so whatever they determine that to be will probably be the best steps for them to take. Uh, we in Guam as a U.S. territory in the northern Pacific hope to get further involved in the region. And, um, you know, I have no, um, you know, I'm, I wouldn't advise them one way or the other um, in what direction to take as long as I, as I will give guiding policy that please make sure that it's in the best interest of the region and of, you know, your own national interests. However, I, I will say, though, that um, I think that there is a variation of, of statecraft in the Pacific in which you can engage with great powers um, and not necessarily have to choose a side so firmly, um, you know, in a way that maybe is in line with the great power competition rhetoric that has been spurred upon by both sides, right? So um, if if it's in our best interest as a region, a national interest, not, you know, for the sovereign states, not to choose one side, then that may be the best way, um, you know. Um, so really, I think every country has to examine their particular national interests. Ken, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you so, so much for your time as well. Uh, that was Ken Cooper, the co-founder of the Pacific Center for Island Security, speaking to us there about a simulated war game by a Washington think tank that puts Guam in the center of post-conflict between U.S. and China. And now, Pacific leaders and support workers in Australia say reforms to the country's labour scheme need to be put in place to ensure Pacific workers benefit from the program. It comes after around 100 Ni Vanuatu seasonal workers were sent to Australia and New Zealand on fake documents, leading to the arrest of a suspect in Vanuatu. Peter Foliaki Lokitui, a Mildura-based liaison officer for Ni Vanuatu seasonal workers, says the situation could be a concern to many who now face unwittingly, or who may unwittingly face a deportation. But he says there are other flaws in the scheme that should also be addressed. You know, you can just imagine if, if a farmer has spent, you know, a lot of resources bringing these workers in and, and if, if let, let's say that 40% of those workers or 20% of the workers are team leaders, mm. all right, and, and a part of a, you know, may, maybe a program that the farmer and, and whoever's a part of it that, you know, they're going to return and, and continue with the palm scheme in terms of what the, all the governments are aiming to achieve. And with such a thing, that's, that's, that's set back. So that's the effect that I see, see happening. And, and, you know, what's going to happen to the workers um, if, if they get uh, sent back? Um, you know, what's the process? Can they come back quickly? Or it's because, um, you know, uh, I, I guess when you look at the legal terms of, of how that goes, um, what, what's that going to be? So, look, I, I can't really say anything in terms of if it's going to hold back anyone. But, but the thing is, look at what cost um, uh, are we are we looking at, especially with with how fast the program is moving. I mean, I, I saw um, a report uh, of the Samoan government uh, not being aware of the the PEV visa that uh, have have been announced. And to to me, that's 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 sort of the concern that I have. Is okay, how fast are we going ahead? But with the issues that that we have still need to look at, how is that going to affect it? Are we are we sort of you know, going forward, 
uh, one step and, and three back? Mm. Or are we, you know, um, going ahead and, and not having having the, the costs uh, getting to the point where you, you have government saying, no, you know, I'm going to hold off. I believe there's there's a way to go ahead. But um, uh, with, with how fast it's going, I, th- I think... Uh, I think we need to maybe take the counsel of what someone government is doing and just really take a step back and say, all right, you know, uh, with with how things are going, we need to really look at it because you know we we're not dealing with uh, um, you know machines. These are people. These are Pacific Islanders who, for I guess in history, have the opportunity to come here to work. And I, I believe that if we get it right, uh, this will not only be like a Pacific thing, but it's going to be a global movement that can really showcase that, you know what, this is how you can move people around the world, make it diverse uh, diverse and culturally uh, viable um, and, and, you know, create a better future for, for the planet, I guess. Mm. And, and uh, you know, this this has just recently come to you, this, this scandal about the forged uh, visas. But are there any other concerns that you have in terms of the, the workers, something that the government isn't getting right um, quite yet? All, all I can say is with what I've witnessed, um, I'll give you an example. So with, with what we've seen, the best um, impact that, that uh, the, the Vanuatu uh, diaspora community uh, where I am, um, see that the best way that we can impact is, you know, educate the local community in terms of how they can relay the information to workers in the area. So we, we ran a workshop down in Castlemaine where we had a prominent, um, sorry, not in Castlemaine, uh, in um, Rarago where a prominent uh, a member of, of the government uh, attended. And after we ran the workshop, you know, for him to sort of um, explain that, I think that's where the issue is, is we, we are we are giving the information in general, but not going to specific. So if you get workers coming in where they have to go through, firstly, the information that they're getting from social media, from their families, and then what the the, the agent or the labor sending unit is giving them in regard to the contracts. You know, they come through Australia, um, the host employer, the approved employer, the union, uh, Fair Work, all these other bodies are, are passing on the information that uh, that you know um, are supposed to be helping them, but if they're not equipped to sort of shift through all that information and find out what exactly is being said, they're signing something that um, that we see happening. They come here, um, even though they've gone through the rigorous process. Two weeks later, they abscond. Mm. Um, you know, and that's just a reflection of of um, of how they um, you know understanding uh, these things. So, uh, I mean, I've I've spoken to a lot of parties, and and everyone's saying the same thing, which is good. You know, we, we're doing the best that we can to help them. And so I see the, the need of making sure that everyone that's giving the information is linked together uh, and, and giving the same information. Mm. Yes, I mean, you mentioned the Samoan government earlier and they have um, called or the acting prime minister has said that they um, haven't been consulted with the expansion of Australia's um, Pacific Labour Scheme. And, and just yesterday I spoke to the prime minister of Vanuatu. Um, he had this to say when it came, comes to Australia's Labour Scheme. Once uh, the Pacific Island countries get together, we can have some meaningful discussion with Australia and New Zealand about how how, how, how we can really uh, continue with these programs, but also ensuring that there is uh, sustainability in, 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 in the domestic scene. I, w- I wanted to ask you, Peter, you know, you said Australia has seemed to be taking um, one step forward, three steps back. In the desire to take get workers from the Pacific, have they been moving too fast and, and have there been gaps in the program as a result, do you believe? I can only share, you know, my 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 sort of my experience with the program. Um, so I, uh, you know, for the past two and a half years, I've uh, I worked for a prominent uh, approved employer, bringing in thousands of workers from Vanuatu. 
And before I joined, you know, I, when the workers came and the complaints they were having, I was raising the same concerns. I was trying to deal with it. But once I got into the program with the approved employer, I saw what they were doing. You know, no one's sort of ignoring what the program is. Uh, actually, they're doing their utmost to make sure that they tick all the boxes. You know, the paper trail is there, making sure that workers are not exploited, so on and so forth. Uh, but the, the what I see, the concern there is that how that information is given to the workers uh, is where the, 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 the issue is. So all the workers that I meet, I tell them that, you know what, I, I trust the program. I actually love the program. You know, you know, give me uh, give me an instance in our history where uh, we have this opportunity. And I tell them, look, um, for for a, a Fijian worker or Vanuatu worker, it'll take you 30 years to build up yourself, but it'll take you three seasons in Australia with this program. I mean, that's 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 the gap. So that means you can build a future uh, compared to your father's so quickly that. Um, um, you know, we, we look at the issues that we're facing politically, uh, rather than depending on the governments, the people actually become the, the solution. And, 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 you know, to me, everything is falling into place. Uh, and I think everyone's on the right track. Um, uh, my, my, I guess my, my push would be to make sure that the information goes across properly. And to me, I see you guys in a very unique position because I, I guess for now, that's the way we're going to be talking and, and, uh, and having you guys to link that information and making sure that that goes across is, is very important because I see that as being the big difference. By, by you guys, do you mean the media? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, going forward, it sounds like you're saying communication is the big gap here, the, the thing that's missing in the program with workers not being told and not being, I guess, the, the, it being transparent to them what exactly to expect when they come to Australia. What, what do you think the solution, the long-term solution is to that? I think for each each person, uh, whether you're a, a worker, an approved employer, is is to make sure that what someone is saying is actually uh, factual, and 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 that's what they're saying. Um, because uh, again, like I said, I mean, I've, I've I've spoken to agents. They they say to the workers what has been told them, but they're not explaining. You know, as an example, the contract to to the point where. Um, the workers will take the information. For example, you know, if you tell a worker that they're going to make an average of 30 hours without explaining to them that 30 hours meaning you're probably going to do 10 hours this week and maybe if it rains the whole week next week, it's going to be zero. But then, you know, in the next month, it's going to be 50, 60 hours and that's going to make up for that. So I think is um, is, is making sure that right from the beginning, um, um, whatever the agent is saying, once they go through the labour sending unit, Whatever they say, it's exactly the same thing or similar, and they get the same understanding. When they come here to Australia, we're not saying differently. Everyone's everyone's here to, to protect the program, to protect the workers, but if we don't make sure that we explain it properly to the workers or work together in a united front, then the cost is going to continue to go back to the workers. You know, we're going to continue to see these issues, and and for me, it's, it's not a fair thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to bear the responsibility individually, and I guess it starts with making sure that um, whatever we say is is to the fact, to the point, um, and, and uh, bearing the responsibility of the consequences, and I think that's going to make a big difference. That was Peter Foliaki Lokitui, a Mildura-based liaison officer for Ni Vanuatu Seasonal Workers. 
Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. The Eels versus Gold Coast Titans. The final score was 24-14. Yes, it was a really uh, strong performance from the Eels, led by their fullback, Bo Vitty Well. She is unbelievable. She ran for 260 metres, two line breaks. Stats that you can only dream of, or you'd make up and then your friend would be like, <laughs> no, you didn't. No, you didn't. <laughs> Can You Be More Pacific, Thursday night, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. It's time to find out what's making news around this region this Thursday morning. Is it Thursday? It is Thursday uh, on Pacific Beat. Uh, and to do that, we're joined by Kyle Evans. Happy Thursday to you, Kyle. Happy Thursday to you, Priyanka. Public holiday today, but not for us, apparently. <laughs> no, not for us. No, the, the news never sleeps, as they say. Um, yes, but uh, we have plenty of stories for you here. Let's start in Papua New Guinea first, Kyle. Uh, new figures have revealed an alarming drop in immunization rates there, particularly amongst children. Uh, what exactly has happened? Yeah, pretty concerning stuff. So um, PNG is uh, is sitting on a time bomb, uh, according to health experts, uh, for a serious disease outbreak, uh, according to the Department of Health, uh, following a 40% drop uh, in vaccination rates uh, among children. So this is reported by the Post Courier, uh, and the alarming drop means that thousands of kids are now vulnerable to, to diseases like measles and polio, you know, diseases diseases that have long since been wiped out. Um, Basically, for context, uh, in 2005, the country's immunization rate was at 70%. So, yeah, pretty decent. Uh, But the last report uh, says it's now down to 32%. uh, And in some provinces, it's actually less than 20. Oh, my gosh. I was going to ask if it was to do with the COVID-19 pandemic, because we've spoken to health experts here on Pacific Beat who said during the pandemic, a lot of people just didn't get their vaccines Mm. and, you know, led to a drop in vaccination rates um, and possibly an outbreak of measles in, in places like Fiji where they uh, recorded a couple of um, uh, rates incidents last year. But this is since 2005. So it's not it's longer than the pandemic. So do we know why it's dropped? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. The, uh, the article didn't really elaborate um, too much, just saying it was numerous things o- over the years. And, and, and you're right, you know, when I first read it, the pandemic was my first instinct that maybe mm. had it. I mean, I'm sure that had some sort of impact, but it, it definitely seems like they were the the drop was already occurring before the pandemic, which is um yeah, which obviously isn't good news. Mm. Um, and the World Health Organization. I mean, do we know how many vaccines are available in Papua New Guinea itself? Does yeah, it- actually, no, that's a, that's a good point. Um, so uh, the World Health Organization has approved uh, twenty childhood vaccines, and they're, they're, that's in a lot of countries around the world. But one of the issues uh, in PNG is that only ten uh, are actually approved in PNG. So they are sort of lagging a little bit behind in terms of a, of, a, of approved back vaccines to begin with. Yes. Sounds like it. Um, and now let's head to Fiji, where police interviewing um, of former Attorney General Ayaz Syed Kayum has been reportedly suspended. Why is that? Yeah, that's right. So uh, police have told the FBC uh, that the suspension um, uh, of the of the interview process is to allow investigators to uh, to verify issues uh, and some of the information gathered that uh, that have come from the interview uh, process so far. So, uh, meanwhile, Fiji Village. Is 
actually reporting that a second round of in- interviews will be held on Tuesday. So looks like uh, they haven't finished up completely, and uh, and this is obviously all in relation to uh, to that complaint filed against the former AG uh, by a minister alleging uh, he incited racial hatred and violence at a media conference in Suva uh, before the new government took office, uh, before taking that leave of absence overseas following the election. Yes, it's a story that doesn't doesn't seem to have an ending, uh, a clear ending yet. Um, but we'll we'll keep an eye on what happens with that former Attorney General's um, investigation. Um, and now to some sporting news: the OFC Under Seventeen Championship finalists were set to uh, were set in stone last night. So tell us what mm-hmm. what two teams made the cut. That's right. So uh, New Zealand and New Caledonia will meet in the decider at on uh, at seven pm uh, on Saturday night for the championship final. Uh, meanwhile, Fiji and Tahiti will play off for third place. So New Caledonia, New Caledonia especially, will be buzzing following the result. They overcame uh, Tahiti in a thriller three uh, two win uh, in extra time. Uh, the scores were oh. locked at, at one all at the end of uh, regulation. So it would have been some some pretty tense moments. Uh, I, I imagine there while, while lining up for those, uh, those shots. Uh, meanwhile, in the other semi-final, uh, New Zealand did it pretty comfortably, uh, beating Fiji 4-1. They're obviously tournament favourites, so probably no real surprises there. Um, more importantly, however, both teams uh, will now automatically qualify for the FIFA Under-17 World Cup in Peru later this year. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's really the ultimate, probably the ultimate prize. So, New Caledonia, New Zealand off to Peru. That's right. Oh, exciting stuff. Thanks, Kyle, for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. You're listening to Pacific Beat here on uh, ABC Radio Australia. Hope you're having a lovely Thursday morning. Fijians are mourning the death of a revered social commentator and philanthropist, Alan Lockington. He passed away in a hospital after battling illness over the past two weeks. He was well known for sharing his thoughts in letters to the editor in the Fiji Times. And joining us now to discuss his legacy is the newspaper's editor himself, Fred Wesley. Uh, Bula, good morning to you, Fred. Bula, Bula Vinaka, Bula. How will you remember Alan Lockington? Well, uh, Alan was uh, uh, was someone who um, I, I suppose uh, uh, people who come you know one, once in a lifetime. Uh, Alan, I'll remember him for uh, his wit, uh, sarcasm. I'll, I'll remember him for uh, the letters that um, forced change in in uh, in our country. Uh, I'll remember him for uh, being very vocal, and uh, I'll also remember him. For for uh, the things that uh, he did for the people, uh, selfless service to the people. Yeah, uh, um, speaking of that selfless service, um, the Prime Minister of Fiji himself, Sidiveni Rambuka, uh, paid tribute to Alan on social media. He shared a visi- visi- video of Mr. Longington delivering food and essential items with the COVID-19 crisis. Why do you think the Prime Minister, um, you know, the very top office of Fiji, paid tribute to this man? Well, as, as, I, as I alluded to earlier, you know, he was a, he was a great man. He um, uh, such uh, people uh, come uh, once in, in a lifetime. You know, you, you have uh, you have someone here who um, who wasn't a prime minister. He wasn't uh, the president of our country. He wasn't even a member of parliament. He, he wasn't uh, a big business owner uh, or, or a spotting superstar. But uh, Alan. Uh, Ellen, in death, 
uh, you know, has come out as a great human being, uh, a decent person, a person who um, who cut through every uh, divide, uh, imaginary or otherwise. Uh, he was uh, he was a man of the people. He uh, he stood up for uh, he stood up for freedom of expression. He stood up for um, uh, charity. He he helped people. And uh, over the course of uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two, when when people were scared to move around, when people were uh, restricted by uh, curfews and, and all of this. Uh, Alan and his team were, were out. They they helped people. They uh, they did. Pe- they, um, they they took food out to people. They, I mean, they they, they were they were basically saviors for a lot of people and a lot of families in, the, in our country. And I, I suppose uh, it, it, it's something the prime minister uh, knew. And 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 in the, and in the lead up to the election 2022, uh, our prime minister was. Um, was was actually with uh, with Alan, you know, took time out to uh, to help him and uh, took time out to uh, pay a visit to people that Alan uh, was helping and assisting. Mm. Uh, yes, I guess it goes to show you don't have to be a celebrity, you don't have to be a big name to make an impact in your community, uh, isn't it, Fred? Uh, and you mentioned no, also. Yes, yeah, um, it's good, good to keep in mind for all of us. Um, you also mentioned, Fred, that, that those, um, letters to the editor he sent and, and, um, uh, Alan being, uh, a, a vocal supporter of freedom of expression. What, what exactly were his letters about? Why did you look forward to, to reading them? Well, Alan, Alan wrote about many things. He wrote about many, he had many topics. In fact, um, if, he, if something bothered him or if something concerned him uh, or he noticed uh, something was not right, he actually put pen to paper. And, and you know, uh, our country uh, has come out of, um, of a period of uh, 16, years, uh, 16 years when things were done differently. And um, there are few people who were, um, who were vocal over this period. And uh, Alan was one of them. He was... Uh, he saw things, and he wasn't um, uh, he wasn't afraid to voice his opinion, and and he didn't uh, he didn't care who uh, who he uh, stepped on or, or whose feathers he ruffled. He, he just uh, you know he he stood up for what he believed in, and and that's something a lot of people will uh, will remember him by. They'll uh, they'll reflect on his life, and they'll remember that he was a man of the people. And he he spoke up for for each one of them, and he you know, he he believed in what he said. He had confidence to do that, and he just uh, he didn't give a hoot about uh, what other people uh, said. Hmm. And speaking of that um, defiance, particularly over that those um, some would say contentious uh, time for for freedom of speech in the last sixteen years. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, Fred, as the editor of Fiji Times, have you noticed any changes um, in, you know, Fiji's most widely read papers, the Fiji Times? Has the media changed with the new government? Well, um, I, I can only speak on behalf of the Fiji Times. You know, we uh, we've um, we've always uh, we've always uh, made it our business to hold power to account. You know, and. Uh, um, given the dynamics, given the different uh, scenarios that uh, uh, that evolved, uh, that um, we faced in our in our nation, 
uh, we've always stood up to that, uh, made sure that we have the power to account. And uh, one of the things, um, one of the things uh, the readers will uh, will uh, know, uh, appreciate, is the fact that uh, uh, you know that that was happening also through the open columns uh, and uh, people like uh, writers like uh, Alan. Uh, they were into it. They were well into it, uh, raising issues of concern over the years, and and you know just doing that, uh, appreciating and placing value on freedom of expression. And uh, now what we what we have now is a continuation of that. You know, people are, are now coming out uh, and and voicing their opinions, and uh, you know it's it's good to see that. It's it's refreshing. Yes, yes, indeed, and and good to have Alan in in our thoughts, in our hearts, as as we uh, express ourselves as widely as we can, wherever we can. Uh, Fred, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and um, and uh, ideas, insights into Alan's uh, legacy there. Thank you, thank you very much for having me, Vinaka. Vinaka, that was Fred Wesley, the editor of the Fiji Times, is speaking with me there. You're listening to Pacific Beat on a Thursday morning, and today, in Australia at least, it is Australia Day. And as part of the national celebration, Australia's South Sea Islander community are hosting a Melanesian mini-fest. The Yumi Wan Solwara event hopes to reflect truth-telling for First Nations communities through songs, stories, and culture. Imelda Davis is the chair of the Australian South Sea Islanders uh, community and and joins us this morning. Uh, Good morning to you, Imelda. Good morning. Um, now, I understand that you have performers from Vanuatu, Fiji, Papua New Guinea joining you for this event. What, what message do you hope that their performances will highlight today? Look, one of the um, most important things about this today is that we uh, create a strong cross-cultural awareness in relation to what occurred so many years ago for our First Nations families and bringing in this strong Melanesian representation um, just solidifies the relationship and the deeper understanding um, of each other's sense of belonging uh, as a part of the Australian community and narrative. So um, it was really important that uh, through... Um, the local Sydney Harbour elders, Mark Merriman, Uncle Mark Merriman, Pastor Ray Minicon, uh, of course, member for Sydney, Alex Greenwich, Auntie Margaret Campbell, um, all staunch leaders from our local Sydney area, but in particular, majority of those are Aboriginal representatives of their communities and the Cedarbullers, um, giving a greater, uh, I guess, inclusion for our Australian South Sea Islander and South Sea Islander families and creating that awareness is is what this day is about. It's also about commemoration and remembering, you know, those that have passed, that have fought the good struggles and the fights for us to actually be able to do this work, very important work. So the achievements for Australian South Sea Islanders Port Jackson, again, is about broader awareness of the blackbirding history But the location is significant because we're on the Sugar Wharf, which is a receiving port for all our people as a collective through slavery, through, you know, Pacific trade um, and what occurred historically, you know, with the the Sugar Wharf and CSR Sugar right here as a um, refinery for the pain cut by our people. 
Mm. I, I mean, organizing an event on, on, on such a day, on, on what is quite a controversial day for us here, mm. here in Australia, it, was that difficult to you, for you to find that balance between, um, you know, having a celebration, having these performers come and, and um, share their, their culture, but also re- finding space to reflect on this colonial history, which, as you said, includes this, this um, sometimes traumatic uh, history of blackbirding amongst the South Sea Islander people? Well, that's right. We see this as an opportunity to actually open up to the broader community and our local communities. This event is not put on without broad consultation with our First Nations families, hence the involvement um, that you see that is leading this festival. And it's going to be quite significant because, you know, there's 50-plus performers just coming from First Nations uh, representation. And... um, in relation to, I guess, you know, change the dates, we support our First Nations communities and the call for change, the call for recognition and the call for, you know, I guess self-determination and respect for that. And that's very much what these people are very keen to reiterate is that, you know, they'll stand strong on this difficult day with us in making sure that we reflect the motto of Australia Day Council, respect and celebrate um, our forebears that have gone before us. And, and we are a family. Let's remember the First Nations communities received South Sea Islander people across missions, stations, plantations, yeah, mm-hmm. absorbed under Aboriginal Protection Acts. And uh, we have that bloodline and evident kinship and a lot of people, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander mob that are coming today are descendants of that blackbird trade, but they want to learn more about their bloodline. They want to learn more about why they came to be. And this atrocity, you know, affected the whole Asia-Pacific region as well, colonisation. So, you know, a lot of discussions to be had today. Yes, and is that why, because this is um, a Melanesian mini-fest, I understand, this, this event today, mm-hmm. Yumi's the Wansolwara, and is that why you chose to uh, include not just the South Sea Islander community but, but other Pacific communities as well? Absolutely, because we're excluded from the narrative. Mm-hmm. Australia is home to the largest Melanesian population outside of their you know, Melanesian, Fijian, Papua New Guinea islands, yeah? So one of the challenges that we're looking to do here is to reiterate our existence and and inform community that this is who we are as that Black Oceania Pacifica representation in this country. The majority of seasonal workers who are representing here today from the Solomon Islands, as well as Vanuatu string bands, You know, they're coming in from Vanuatu yet again. Historically, we've got this history of blackbirding and you've got 75% of the trade that were taken from Vanuatu. Mm. And then again today in holding up our economy, you have our Vanuatu, 11,000 plus of the 35,000 seasonal workers that are in this country today holding up the economy. Not to take away from anybody, but we need to know you know, how this country was built. And if we're truly talking about Australia Day and greater inclusion, then, you know, we're all a part of that narrative. So that's, again, the motto. 
Yeah, we're it's all funny. A part of the story. We're all, we are all part of it, and and I wonder if we're missing parts of that story because it's funny you mentioned that Imelda that that I guess um parallel between well some some might say a parallel between um the the uh, history of um, bringing in. Um, workers from the Pacific and what we're seeing today. Um, just earlier in the show, we spoke to a liaison officer about the Vanuatu workers now and a lot of the um, difficulties they're finding as as the Pacific uh, labor scheme expands here. I, is it right to say that you see a parallel between blackbirding and the seasonal labor scheme today? My sister, there's no doubt the parallel is there because we've been advocating and working in this space of human rights and social justice for our Vanuatu Pacific families that are being brought here, exploited through, you know, there's a lot of good agents, but there's a lot of bad people out there that are taking advantage of the system. And the thing is, the governments need to step up to the plate and work with our community groups such as Australian South Sea Islanders, Port Jackson, and the many other Australian South Sea Islander organisations across this country that have the lived experience. But at the same time, we need to come together as a community and work better together because the compliance and the cultural framework isn't there. And you've got people at the head, at the top, that are managing this program that have no inkling or idea. Just because you're a uh, or you say you're South Sea or you're a Pacific Islander or you're an Aboriginal person doesn't mean you have that deep lived experience with the issues, yeah? So it's very select. It's just like First Nations voice. It's like, how is that represented? How are we going to be included as a part of this narrative when you've got people on the ground that are doing grassroots work consistently? Local knowledge is key. But then you've got this broader picture of a uh, top-down approach which, uh, you know, you, we need to find the balance. So we've been advocating for the rights of our Vanuatu, Solomon's, Pacific people, Melanesian peoples, yeah, for since the scheme started. And still today we're grappling, you know, with the lack of deep, you know, I guess mis- misunderstanding of what's going on. And these people, I comply, um, Horticulture Organisation is one of the sponsors for our Vanuatu seasonal workers, they are doing formidable work with our Vanuatu communities and providing, you know, incentives, equal rights and justice for those workers. And they're going home and rebuilding their communities. And that's one of the best agents that I've ever come across thus far, thus far. And this is this is not just a tokenistic thing. This is something that, you know, we've witnessed firsthand. And, and, you know, from the people, we've consulted with a lot of seasonal workers across this nation. So, yeah, look, um, a lot of work to be done, but, hey, no one man's an island. So <laughs> let's work together, you know. It's, um, yeah. Yes, and I can hear that frustration in your voice, Imelda, that, you know, that, and that fear that history might repeat itself um, with, with some, some of the, the stories that we're hearing out of that Pacific Island scheme, um, labor scheme. Uh, Imelda, thank you so much for your time. Uh, remind us again what the event is today uh, on Australia Day. So you, me, one salt water is, is you and me, one salt water. And that's a, that's a, a Bishlama word that was formed out of the trade, out of the Blackbird trade in Bundaberg. And that's now the um, national language of Vanuatu, but spoken also throughout the Pacific. And we've got formidable descendants 
you know, of those islands, but headed up by our First Nations families. Mm. Um, so, yeah, if people can come down, it's open air, free, beautiful, scenic views and one so- right by the salt water where you can jump in and have a swim even. Here, right here in Sydney. Yes, right there in Sydney. Imelda, thank you so much for speaking to us about that event. Thank you, Timas. Thank you. That was Imelda Davis uh, speaking to us about that Australia A Day event, the Melanesian Mini Fest. That brings us to the end of Pacific Beach. Thank you for your company this morning. Join us again tomorrow. (laughs) 